Please join us for our service already in progress. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time to his mother's womb and be born when he's old? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one had ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because, they're evil, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, my only desire this morning is that you would just fill me with your spirit, Lord, and speak through me. Lord, I pray for those that are here today and those who are listening online. God, I pray, Father, you would use your word to draw the people to you, Father. God, we pray for people to be saved today, God. We pray for hearts to be open and minds to be open to the truth of your word, God. So, Lord, would you take your word and would you implant it in our lives this morning and reveal to us our true state before you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Satan's best tactic, and I think it's the most cruelest tactic, is to make you think you're saved. Just think about that. If he can make you think you're saved, then you won't think you need to be saved. And this is the case of Nicodemus in our story today, obviously. And Nicodemus here, it serves probably as one of the best accounts of being 
that someone who is a faithful, devoutly religious man who knew his Bible forward and backwards, he was a biblical scholar. I mean, he, he, he probably grew up going to the temple as a small Jewish boy. Most of them did. He probably went there all of his life, but in all of his biblical knowledge, in all of his position, had nothing to do with his eternal destination, his salvation. So let's see what we can learn about this man right off the bat. Look at John 3, 1. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So right off the bat here, we already know three things about Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. In other words, you pretty much, I think we all know what a Pharisee was. They were the religious leaders of that day. He, Nicodemus was like a pillar in the community. Nicodemus was a good man by all accounts. He probably wasn't like a lot of the other Pharisees. He was, by all accounts that we know about him, he was really a really good guy. But he was probably the, the kind of guy that, man, if you had a question about the Bible, or if you had a question about Old, Old Testament Mosaic Law, he would have been your go-to guy because this guy knew his Bible. And back in that day, man, if anybody would have ever thought that anybody was ever going to make it into heaven, you would have thought, surely Nicodemus will be in heaven. But the second thing, and obviously, we know his name is Nicodemus, right? But the kind of the weird thing about that is the, the name Nicodemus is actually Greek. Nicodemus was a Jew. And so it was a little bit strange that his parents named him Nicodemus, a Greek name, and not a Jewish name. I don't really know why, but maybe, maybe I don't know, his parents one day just heard this name Nicodemus, thought, you know, that's a cool name. If we ever have a son, that's what we're going we're gonna to tag him with, Nicodemus. So his name is Nicodemus, but thirdly, we see that in just that first verse right there, he was a ruler of the Jews. In other words, he was also not just a Pharisee, but he was a member of the Sanhedrin. There was approximately seven members of the Sanhedrin, and these guys were like the judges of the land. In fact, he had a lot of power. He's probably more like a Supreme Court justice. He had a lot of power. He had the power to send it you into prison or to have you acquitted. The only thing that the Sanhedrin could not do, they could not pass the death sentence. That, that's why they needed Pontius Pilate to pass the death sentence on Jesus, because they had no power to do that. The, the Romans officials, they had allowed the Jews to have their own court system, to settle their own disputes. So Nicodemus would have been just like a Supreme Court judge. I mean, if you'd have seen Nicodemus walking down the road back then, you would have been blown away. It would have been like maybe if we saw Clarence Thomas or Neil Gorsuch, one of our Supreme Court justices of the United States, walking you know, down the road, and we'd be like... Man, that's Clarence Thomas, man. We'd have been blown away. We'd have been on our phone. I just saw Clarence Thomas. That's so cool. But he, this guy was very popular. He was a very powerful man. He was a Pharisee, and his name was Nicodemus. The thing is, again, that not all the Pharisees were corrupt back that day. But there's strong evidence, as we'll see a little later on, that Nicodemus was a, among some of the few Pharisees that were good, honest, and upright people. And again, if you'd have been around back in that day, you would have thought, man, there's anybody that's going to make it into heaven. It's going to be Nicodemus. Look at the second part of verse 2 in chapter 3 there. This man, being Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. 
Now, there's a lot of opinions out there as to why he came to Jesus by night. Most people say, well, he kind of went under the cover of darkness because he didn't want to be seen by the other Pharisees because it just wasn't cool to be hanging out with Jesus back then. They, they hated Jesus, so he goes under the cover of darkness to see Jesus. And another uh, opinion that I read about is some thought that, you know, uh, the rabbis back then, they preferred to study the Word of God at night. So uh, maybe he's, he's going to Jesus by night because he wants to talk about the kingdom of God. That would have been one possibility. But here's something we can know for sure. And here's what I think. We may think a couple of things, but this is one of them. I think he's just being plain old led by the Holy Spirit of God. I think it's just the Holy Spirit of God is using some things in Nicodemus's life to draw him to the Savior of the world. And it's just so awesome to see that this is what's going on. And how do we know that? Because of what it says in John 6, 44. Let's look at it. It teaches us that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. But I, I think there's yet another reason why Nicodemus came by night. Let's look at the, the second part of verse 2. And said to him, Mrs. Nicodemus, Rabbi, we, hey, you might want to underline that little word we there if you have your Bible. It's really important. We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. So the question when you look at that verse is, who's we? Who are these guys that, that Nicodemus is talking about? Well, obviously, there must have been this prior discussion with the other Pharisees going on. And, and they all agreed that Jesus, because of what they had seen, remember verses, or chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, they had seen the miracles that Jesus did. So there must have been this prior conversation about what was going on, the things that they had saw Jesus do. And they all agreed that, yeah, well, you know, there's just no denying this. Jesus had to come from God. And I think this is what the Holy Spirit is truly using to draw Nicodemus with this encounter with Jesus Christ. Because Nick, again, admits that Jesus has come from God. And no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. So Nick had seen Jesus. He had seen him do the miracles. He had heard Jesus. And Nicodemus, being an Old Testament scholar, and this is really interesting, he would have known full well that there had not been a prophetic word from God in 400 years. It's that period of time in between the last book of prophecy was written, which was Malachi, and to the time we get to Luke chapter 1, that period of time is 400 years. It's what is known as the intertestamental period, or commonly known as the 400 years of silence. And this was predicted by Daniel in great detail. But saying, by saying or admitting that Jesus has come from God, in Nick's mind, man, he thinks he's found the first prophet to come along in 400 years. And so he wants to, be the, he wants to beat everybody to the punch. He wants to be the first to get to Jesus. So he goes under the cover of darkness, being led by the Holy Spirit, and he thinks he's going to go get to talk about the kingdom of God. And so the question that was on Nicodemus' mind is that he's on his way to Jesus had to have been, and what's, what's the kingdom of heaven really going to be like? 
That's what is on his mind. And this point is so obvious because Jesus answers the question that Nicodemus has before Nicodemus can even get it out. Jesus knowing Nicodemus' thoughts. He knows his heart. Remember back in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, that Jesus knew all men. He knew what was in all men. He knows Nicodemus' thought. He knows what's going on in his head. How do we know that? Look at John 3, 3. Jesus answered. Answered what? Do we see Nicodemus ask the question? No, he doesn't ask the question. He doesn't have to. Jesus goes straight to Nicodemus' problem, and he answers the question that was on Nicodemus' heart and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus simply did what Jesus always does, man. He goes straight immediately to the need of man. He went straight to Nicodemus's, the need in his heart. Nicodemus knew that if you could just get to Jesus. This is such an amazing thing. And Jesus is telling the most upright man, the most devoutly religious man, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, the guy that tithed, the guy that served all his life, he's telling Nick, there's no sense in talking about the kingdom of God. You ain't going to make it. And that must have blew his mind. Because Nick was a great guy. He was a good guy. He would have been the model neighbor to have. It would have been so convenient to have. Because he was a New Testament scholar. He knew the Old Testament forward and backward. Again, he's a good man. He's a religious man. He tithes. He serves. Nicodemus responds. He says, how can this be? He says, you, you can't enter the kingdom of God. He says, I'm not going to make it. What, what are you saying, Jesus? He says, are you kidding me? And surely if anyone back in that day again thought that somebody was going to make it, it was going to be Nicodemus. And I get, I get it, you know, because, you know, it's logical to think that righteous, good people who go to church all the time and do good things and serve and this and all that, or, or if it's just a good, moral, upright person. See, I get the logic. Then why would God send that person to eternal damnation? Doesn't seem, it doesn't seem right. I, I get that it's a logical thinking because, see, that's the thinking of the day. Most people think that heaven is this good place where there is a good God. And the only criteria... To get into this good place where there is a good God is you have to be what? Good. That's it. And that's the logic. That's the general thinking of most, even people that have been sitting in church all their lives kind of believe that. But you know what? Then again, the thief on the cross kind of blows that whole analogy out of the water, does he not? Remember the thief on the cross? Remember, Jesus is on that center cross, and, and all of a sudden, a thief, he, he looks over at Jesus, and he goes, oh, my gosh, this, this is the Messiah. This is the one I've heard about all my life. He's on a cross next to me. He recognizes in that moment, in that final moment of his life, that Jesus was the Messiah. And he confesses him as Lord. He says, Lord, will you remember me this day when you enter into paradise? Remember what Jesus said? Surely. You will be with me this day in paradise. And you have to logically just think through that. Well, wait a second. The thief wasn't a good guy. He was a bad guy. He was the guy that was going to steal your stuff. 
All your hard-earned stuff, man, he's the guy that's going to come in and steal it away, let alone who knows what else this guy did. It kind of just blows this whole good people go to heaven thing right out of the water. John chapter, or chapter 3, verse 4. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Nicodemus' response here regarding the physical birth, it strongly indicates that he had no clue of what Jesus was talking about. And he was unable to grasp it. Look at, look at verse 5. And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And I personally don't believe Jesus is not referring to a literal water here, but rather the need for a spiritual cleansing. See, Jesus is beginning to help Nicodemus understand because, again, remember, Nicodemus is an Old Testament scholar. He, he would have known. So Jesus is beginning to put it into terms that Nicodemus should have understood. It's because Old Testament, the word water, it habitually refers to a renewal or a spiritual cleansing, especially when used in conjunction with the word spirit. So Jesus is referring to a washing or a purification of the soul accomplished only by way of the Holy Spirit through the word of God at the moment of our salvation. Look at Titus 3, 5. It says, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So again, here in John chapter 3, Jesus is clearly discrediting the whole myth that good people go to heaven who do good things. He's, he's totally blowing that out of the water. Look at John 3, 6. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Poor Nicodemus, he is so struggling at this point. And understandably so, because if Nick knew anything, again, he thought he was going to heaven, but being told by Jesus himself that, Nick, you ain't going to make the cut, brother. You're not going to make it. So Jesus knows that Nicodemus is struggling at this point. And Jesus begins to put it in even more simplistic terms from here on out. He's, try, he's, he's trying to help him understand and distinguish the difference between the physical birth and spiritual birth. Here in verse 6, he says, the flesh is flesh. In other words, hey, you're born worms into this world, but that which is spirit is spirit. And our need to be reborn of the spirit, man, that goes all the way back to the fall of man into sin. Back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where God warned Adam. Let's look at it real quick. It says... And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And so the question when we look at this verse right here, well, what kind of death is God talking about here? Is he talking about physical death, or is he talking about spiritual death, or is he talking about both here? Because the word death here actually refers to a separation. It can mean both physical and spiritual death or, or eternal separation. And we know because God, of what he has promised 
In verse 17, he says, For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Which means in that moment when Adam disobeyed God, he died both spiritually and he was going to die physically one day. He didn't die in that moment because we know that Adam lived for 930 years. But in that moment when he sinned, he died spiritually. And what we need to understand is man is three parts. I believe that man is a trichotomy. He, he, is, he is what we see, our body. It's the part we see, we get to recognize and talk to, right? Our soul, that's who we are inside. That's our will, our intellect, our personality. Whenever you hear somebody describing somebody, say, man, that person's got a good heart. We're talking about their soul. But then there's our spirit. That's the part of man that died with Adam's sin. And at the moment he sinned, he died spiritually. This is the reason why Nick, or Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. Because the part, that spirit part of us, the part of us that communicates to God, the part of us that longs for God, the part of us that desires God's word, that part of man had died since the fall of Adam into sin. How do we know that? Ephesians 2.5. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. So let's go back to our story, keeping this in mind. John 3, 7. He says, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. In other words, what Jesus was saying, if I could just paraphrase that, he's going, Nick, don't get hung up on the terminology born again. Don't get hung up. He's really, what Nicodemus needs to get hung up on is verse 8. Let's look at it. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. See, Jesus' point here is that the wind cannot be controlled. You can't see it. You can't see where it's going. You can't see where it's going. But we could look outside right now, and we can sure see the effects of the wind. We can walk outside, and we can feel it you know, going across our skin. We can look at the trees and see the trees moving back and forth. We can't see the wind, but you can sure see the results of the wind. This is Jesus' point. Just like the Holy Spirit. You can't see the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit cannot be controlled. It, it, it's hardly even... Un it is difficult to understand the Holy Spirit in, entirely, but the proof of the work of the Holy Spirit is undeniable. Again, it's First Corinthians or Second Corinthians five seventeen. If any man be in Christ, he is a what? New creation. Old things are passed away. All things become brand new. Why? Because the Holy Spirit becomes a part in the believer's life. And all of a sudden, man, things are different now. Things have changed. Where the Spirit is at work, there is an undeniable evidence of salvation. There's this obvious change in a person when they get saved. Once the Holy Spirit of God takes up residency. See, you can't be born again and not have a change of heart. A change of mind and a change of direction. This was Jesus' point to Nicodemus here. Look at verse 9. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Man, you can just 
feel the frustration in his voice there. He's just, he's sad to having a hard time because he's trusting in his religious works. He's trusting in the fact that he's a good person. He's trusting in the fact that he knows the word of God. And he's thinking, how can this even be possible, Jesus? So he's still confused at this point. He's still trusting in his righteous works. Look at Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not of works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So look at John 310. And Jesus answered and said to him, I love this verse. I kind of find it comical. He says, Are you not the teacher of Israel? You don't know these things? It's like the ultimate slam dunk right there. Jesus said, dude, you don't know this stuff. You should know this stuff. I mean, wow, I mean, talk about the ultimate slam dunk here. And the use of the definite article, the word the before teacher, it's important. He says, you are the, not just a teacher of Israel, but you are the, the teacher of Israel. It, it indicates what I said earlier. Nicodemus was a resound master of the Old Testament. He was the teacher, the teacher in the nation of Israel. And Jesus was saying to him, yeah, you're an Old Testament scholar. Yeah, you're a Pharisee. You're of the Sanhedrin. You're a good old boy. You're a great neighbor. But Jesus here, he's not pulling any punches. And so he lowers the boom of reality on Nicodemus. In verses 11 through 21, the focus begins to turn away from Nicodemus. And it centers on Jesus' discourse regarding the true meaning of salvation. And for me, the key word to keep in mind in these next verses is the word believe. Because it appears seven times in our final verses. Look at John 3, 11 through 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? See, at heart, Nick's failure to understand Jesus' words, it wasn't centered on his intellect but his failure to believe in his heart what Jesus was telling him, that salvation was by faith and by faith alone. John 13, or verse 13, excuse me. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. See, Jesus said, hey, no one's ascended to heaven but me, and I ascended down. So I'm the only one that can tell you about heaven and so he's the only one that had this true heavenly knowledge and so in verses 14 and 15 this is where it gets really interesting for especially for me it's like jesus comes out of nowhere with these it almost seems out of context when you when you read it but it's brilliant why because jesus is the master teacher look at it John 3, 14 and 15. And as Moses, where's this coming from? It's just coming out of nowhere. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, verses 13 and 14 kind of drives it home. It's really my, first, my favorite two verses out of this entire passage right here. And even though it seems out of context, it is absolutely not out of context. So what's he talking about? What's Jesus talking about here? Moses holding up some snake on a stick? What does it have to do with being born again, you know? Well, actually, it has a lot to do with it. You see, what Jesus was referring to was the count that happened. If you're taking notes, you want to write down Numbers chapter 21. Maybe you should go back and read that chapter when you get home today. But this is what Jesus referred to, what had happened back in Numbers 21. So what happened was the children of Israel, here they are, they're, they're meandering their way through the wilderness, and they're doing as they always did. They would, they would do really good, and all of a sudden they get to this point, they start complaining and murmuring about God and Moses. And they had gotten to the point to where, remember God had gave them the manna to eat all along the way, and they had got to the, the point where, man, we're sick and tired of eating this manna, manna every day for crying out loud, manna, manna, manna. And they begin to complain to Moses, and, uh, and God hears this, and, and man, it, it ticks God off, and God says, Moses, you tell your people, I'm going to send some snakes into the camp, literal snakes. In Numbers 21, it refers to them as fiery serpents. And we don't really know what that meant, but other than maybe when they were bitten in that venom, it just made you put your body or feel like it was on fire. We don't really know. But what was going on, man, God had sent these snakes into the, into the camp there, and, and they were biting people, and people were beginning to die. And all of a sudden, they get a, Moses, Moses, we're sorry. Hey, we've come up with a new cookbook, 100 Ways to Cook Manna. We're good now. Tell God to back off. And, and so Moses goes to God, and, and he says, well, you know, would you, would you spare him? And, and God says, well, here's what I'm going to do, Moses. I want you to take a pole, and I want you to form a bronze snake, and I want you to put him up, up on that pole. And I want you to lift it up. And whoever will look upon that serpent on the pole, I will save them from the venom of those snakes. And so here's the crazy thing about that. We know there's right around 2 million Jews that God led out of Egypt. And how do we know that? Well, we know that there were right around 630,000 males that, that under, over the age of 20 because a, a Jewish male under the age of 20 was not considered a, a man or at least for war. So that's not even counting the, all the males under the age of 20. And then there were the, you know, the young females and there were the, the women. So all in all, we pretty safe to say there was right around 2 million people. And so I want you to think about this. They're in the wilderness. There's mountains, there's trees, there's valleys, two million people. There's not even two million people in Jacksonville. So kind of wrap your mind around that. I think there's like 1.3, 1.4 million people in Jacksonville. So if you were to put all the people in Jacksonville in one area, think how vast that is. Let, let me bring it down to something we may, maybe can wrap our minds around a little bit more. Most of you have probably at some point in time been to a stadium, an NFL game or maybe a college game. And, you know, like especially a college stadium, they hold right around 100,000 plus. And if you are on the top row in the end zone and you look at the other top row on, on the end zone all the way across the field, and if some guy was holding up a pole with a snake on it, do you think you could see that? And we're just talking about 100,000 people here. 
You might see somebody holding up a something, but I don't think you could tell what's, what's on that pole. What's that dude holding up, right? Think about it. Two million people in the wilderness, trees, mountains, let alone eyesight. Let's factor in eyesight, and everybody has good eyesight, right? So you have to ask yourself the question, well, how in the world were these people supposed to see Moses holding up this snake on a stick? The only answer is, they couldn't. So how could they see it and be saved? It was a look of faith. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So ask yourself, can any of you, did any of you see Jesus hanging on the cross? No. It's 2,000 years ago. So how are we saved? It's the same way. This is Jesus' point. It's a look of faith by trusting and believing that somewhere, man, I didn't see it. I, I was born 2,000 years ago, but I believe with my heart, not a knowledge, not just because I've read something in the Word of God or heard a Sunday school lesson or heard some preacher preaching. One day, but I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin. It's an amazing thing. Jesus' point was that the most faithful, devout, religious man in the region, he says to them, Nick, no point in talking about the kingdom of God unless you have been born again. It was a look of faith by trusting and believing that God sent his son. Look at verse 14. Even so must the son of man be lifted up that... Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So let's bring it back full circle. Let me ask you again. Nobody here saw Jesus die on the cross. Of course not. It's believing by faith. And our next verse is the essence of what it means to believe by faith. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Fact, let's everybody say it. Say it with me. For God... So loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not what? But have what? Eternal life. It's the greatest verse in all the word of God right here. This verse magnifies God's love for us. There's no other single statement in the Bible so aptly sums up God's redemptive purpose in Christ for the human race. And I think the important thing here is the word believe does not refer to a head belief, guys. It's a heart belief. The word belief means to consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust to accept it as true, true, genuine, or very, very real. And so the word believe here, it kind of runs into the meaning of the word or the phrase to obey. You see, a head belief acknowledges facts just like the people that we started off in, in our time of day in John 2 23 to 25 they believed in the fact oh yeah we saw it no denying that I saw it with my own eyes but see a heart belief will lead you to action that's the difference it will lead you to obedience it will lead you to a change of heart a change of mind a change of direction. 
Just like the illustration that Jesus used about Moses holding up the serpent on the pole. It was a look of faith that all who will believe, man, I can't see Moses doing, but somewhere I know he's out there and he's holding it up, and I believe that with all of my heart. Verse 17. For God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world. Pastor Wesley's favorite part in this passage. But in order that the world might be saved through him. See, the first time Jesus came, he, he did not come to judge. He came to save. Man, that is so beautiful. But the second time on his return, he's not coming back to save. He's coming back as judge and, ju- and jury. He's coming back to judge and condemn. And because of God's judgment in the future, man, verse 18 is some really, really good news. Let's look at it. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Verses 19 through 21 sums up the judgment and God's mercy at the same time. Let's look at it as we close out. And this is the judgment. That light has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may clearly be seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so Nicodemus, he's kind of faded out of our story today, and it leads us to wonder, whatever happened to old Nick? Whatever, whatever became to him after Jesus explained the gospel to him, did this deeply religious, devout man who knew the Old Testament forward and backwards, did he, did he, was he still trusting in his works and his position after Jesus had explained all this to him? Or did he receive Jesus as Lord and Savior and become born again? And I believe there is ample, ample evidence to show that Nicodemus actually did become born again by receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Look at John 7, 50-51. Kind of fast forwarded in the book of John. And Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, so we know it's the same Nicodemus, who was one of them, in other words, one of the Pharisees, one of the Sanhedrin, said to him, does our law, and he's saying this to the guys because they're trying to condemn Jesus. They're trying to, you know, they want to put him to death. They want to kill him right here without a trial. And who is it that's standing up boldly in Jesus' defense? It's Nicodemus. Look what he says. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? The one is sneaking by night is now boldly coming in Jesus' defense. Look at John 19, 38 through 39. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, Matthea, who was a disciple of Jesus, and, and by the way, Joseph was also one of the Sanhedrin, for secretly, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he could, might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission so that he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who early had come to Jesus by night, clarification, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So here's Nicodemus and Joseph. They're risking their reputation. They're risking their positions. They're probably even risking their lives 
to come and, got, and gather the body of Jesus and prepare for burial. Even Jesus' own disciples had scattered like rats off a sinking ship. But who's standing in the gap to receive the body of Jesus? It wasn't the disciples. You couldn't find those guys. They were gone, gone. But here's Nicodemus and Joseph risking it all to prepare the body of Jesus for burial. It should have been his disciples doing that. They had spent three years with Jesus learning them. It should have been them. But Nicodemus, boldly by his actions in preparing the body of Jesus, was, is giving proof to us that, man, dude got saved. And the question that you need to consider, well, which Nicodemus are you here today? Are you the Nicodemus that you're trusting in your church attendance? You're, you're trusting in, in, in the fact that you just attend church and, and you come to Sunday school and, and maybe you throw a couple of bucks in the plate here and there and you've heard the gospel all your life? Are you trusting in that? Your good works? Or are you like the Nicodemus that truly became born again and the evidence coming out of your life gives proof. Just like you can't see the wind blow, but you can sure see the results. So it is with the Spirit. You can't see the Holy Spirit coming into your heart, but you can sure see the results of a person who is born again. And many people think that they're a good person. Again, they're raised in church and all these things that were okay in God's eyes. Pray some form prayer at some point in your life. Pastor said, well, if you'll just pray this prayer, it's the one that drives me crazy. No, it's not just a prayer that you pray. It's a heart decision. You see, there's a huge difference between knowing facts about God and knowing God personally as the creator of the world, your Savior, and the fact that he's changed your life ever since you asked him to come into your heart. So let me ask you guys something. Can you go back to a time and place in your life where you asked Jesus to come into your heart? Do you remember the event? Do you remember when that happened? I'm not asking if you remember the day and the time. But what I'm asking you, do you remember the event of Jesus coming into your life? Because there's, there's some events in our life that we never forget, right? And we should remember that one. I mean, you know, it, it, you, don't, you may not remember the day that you graduated from high school. You may not remember the day that you graduated from college or the month. But you're sure you'll never forget the event of your graduation. Sometimes, man, we forget our anniversary date, our marriage anniversary date. There's one thing for sure. We may goof up and do that and get ourselves in trouble now and then. But one thing for sure, we will never forget the day we got married. Can somebody please explain to me, how can it be that when you ask somebody to be, you know, when did you get saved? Well, I, I don't know. I was a child. But when was that? Well, I don't know. I was a child. I prayed a prayer. Can somebody please explain to me, how can it be that you can't remember the event, the day that the creator of the universe knocked on your heart's door, put his spirit in me, and you can't remember the most amazing, magnificent 
unbelievable thing that can possibly happen to a human being. You have no recollection of that. If you can't remember it happened, then how do you know it did? You got to think about that, guys. It's serious. Do you have a testimony? Can you go back to that event, that place and time in your life that, yes, I remember. I remember the day I, I know where I was. I asked Jesus to come in my life and he changed my life. I'm not a perfect person. I've, I've not lived my life all perfect and everything, but man, God changed my life and I know that his spirit now lives in me. Can you say that this morning? I'm going to call the worship team back up. And I want you to think about which Nicodemus are you? The one that thought he was or the one that was? And so we're going to simply do this. Pastor Wes is going to, they're going to play a song here. and You're going to ask everybody. I don't, I don't normally do this, but I feel strongly led to do that this morning. And I'm just going to ask all of you, would you mind everybody bow your head? Nobody moving, nobody looking around. Just bow your heads. Ask God to reveal that to you. Which one are you? Which Nicodemus are you? Jesus said, Whoever will come to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you can't remember that time and place, I'm just wondering, would you be willing to receive Jesus in your heart today? If that's you, would you mind doing that just by simply lifting up your hand this morning? I won't embarrass you. I won't call on you or anything like that. I just want to pray for you. Anyone at all. If you feel your heart kind of moving and racing right now, hey, that's the greatest compliment you're ever going to see. That's the Holy Spirit of God. Just like Nicodemus, he's drawing you. He's urging you to come to him. Man, don't ignore that. Anybody at all. Everybody look up. And praise God. I'm glad you have that assurance. You said, but listen, if you go through the day and you're still trying to struggle with this thing and you need somebody to talk to, please let me know. Please see me after this service. See somebody. Man, don't leave this place having a question in your mind about your salvation. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. God, it's true. It so works in our lives. God, I pray for the one that's maybe listening online and possibly even here today, God, that's still struggling with this issue of salvation, God. Lord, I pray you would meet them right where they're at right now and they would receive you into their lives. God, would you help us? Would you strengthen us? Would you lead the people that don't know you to a saving knowledge of you today? In Jesus' name, amen.